So it's the first episode in our new business series of interviews. We have the pleasure this morning of being joined by Michael Kroger. Michael is a well-known Melbourne businessman with interests across the field of politics, banking, corporate advisory and the law. He brings to the table relationships with many of Australia's leading businesses and business figures and is well-placed to provide frank insights into the current environment from a political and economic perspective. Michael, thanks for your time this morning. Let's start with the current state of play. You've had uh, practical experience in living through multiple economic cycles over your career. Take us through your perspective on the strength of the Australian economy in its current form and in what direction do you see the economy taking over the course of the year ahead? Well, mate, the real change uh, now as opposed to previous downturns and cycles is our historic low interest rates. And what sent a lot of homeowners um, into foreclosure, what sent a lot of businesses to the wall was the massively high interest rates uh, that we had in Australia. And of course, we know on, on, at one stage under the Keating regime, they went over 20%. Well, it's going to kill any business or any homeowner. So because we've got so low, low, such low rates, it sustains um, uh, you know, higher asset prices for obvious reasons. And I think it's the mainstay of re rebuilding the economy apart from the hundreds of billions of dollars of stimulus, but lot that's short term, long term. If you have historically low interest rates, then it's going to, it's going to underpin a, a good recovery in the Australian economy. So the government can't keep on spending other people's money forever. And, you know, JobKeeper finishes at the end of March, as we know. But uh, for me, the, the, the low interest rates is what, uh, is what marks a profound difference between this and any other economic downturn I lived through, mate. And given the global uncertainty surrounding COVID, what are the opportunities and what are the challenges for the Australian economy over the medium to long term, in your view? Well, look, um, uh, none of us have a crystal ball, as we know. And if we'd all seen after pay $89 during <laughs> the beginning of COVID, uh, if we had our time over again, and if we had cash in unlimited uh, proportions, um, I, 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 I'm still, um, you know, very cautiously optimistic about the future. I mean, the economy's had a massive hit, but you see the Dow and the All Lords here in Australia at record or near record levels. And you think, given the economic shocks we've suffered, how can that possibly be? And the answer is, of course, low interest rates, but it's also the massive amounts of stimulus. Well, that stimulus has got to come to an end, as we've discussed. And therefore, my, my near-term outlook is probably, um, you know, a bit more bearish than others on the, on the, on the marketplace, on the stock market, because, uh, as I said, that stimulus runs out and, um, you know, the underpinning, the underpinning of profitability of a lot of companies in Australia, which was the payment of wages, JobKeeper, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, finishes. And so I'm a bit more bearish than, than many. In terms of uh, opportunities, well, I think in any downturn, if you've got cash, you're in the best possible position. You know, the property market has been rising, uh, which is surprising. Um, let's see what happens at the end of JobKeeper in the middle of 2021 when the government assistance you know, comes to an end, which it has to. So my thing is, if you can be in cash, be in cash. The markets at this these high levels, the property market at these high levels, given what's happened is, um, to me, it's a bit counterintuitive. Based on the conversations you're having, what's the sentiment like amongst business leaders in Australia? And what are the key agenda items or key focus items do you think that the business community is pushing for? Well, um, again, I think amongst a lot of people there is cautious optimism for, the, for, for exactly the same reasons that, that I've indicated. 
Look, um, the business community um, always want uh, changes and reform, and this would be a great opportunity for that. And it's the usual agenda of things, uh, deregulation, and we saw a lot of the suspension of regulation during COVID, uh, industrial relation changes and reforms, you know, getting rid of unnecessary taxes, charges, regulations, imposts, uh, regulations between each state, which are different, et cetera. So it's the usual agenda. Uh, and you'd hope that in the next 12 to 24 months, there's an opportunity for state and federal governments to cut a sway through all of these regulations. Um, because to open and sustain any business uh, in Australia and a small business is incredibly difficult. You've got the licenses and approvals you need to open a restaurant, a cafe, uh, for those in the property sector, I mean, you need, if you're a property developer, mate, you need a medal, quite frankly, you know, they talk about reforming the order of Australia. Well, if you've got, if you've got the patience and courage to get a permit, a, a planning and a building permit, and then you go through the whole building process, and then you're hit by COVID and you've got restrictions on your property development, et cetera, et cetera, and you've got people defaulting along the way, uh, and then you've got to resell. If you, if property developers need a medal, mate, for the courage that they show, um, you know, as you know, I've done a few myself and it is the most tortuous process. Um, so I think the other big economic reform in Australia is, is, is reform to the planning laws at a state level. I mean, you cannot have six months, 12 months, two years, and in some cases longer than two years, approval processes for planning permits. Uh, now, you know, in Victoria, we have we have outsourced building permits, so they can be done relatively quickly. But the planning process is farcical. It is 17th century. It needs urgent rectification. Uh, that's not to say they should be taken away from councils, but councils must be given a limit. You have X days to approve a planning permit. If not, it goes to VCAT or somewhere. Developers need certainty. And for this open-ended process, where it just goes on and on and on at the whim of a council officer or the council or the objections and VCAT. Um, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of capital stuck in a slow lane for a long period of time, bedeviled by uncertainty. Uh, and then, you know, who knows what's gonna happen in the market last year, COVID hits. Well, who would have thought that? So, you know, if you, if you wanna fix the Australian economy to be specific, one of the urgent, urgent rectifications necessary is reform of the planning process. 90 days, that's it. You should get a planning permit in 90 days, 30 days for an appeal to be heard, 120 days, that's it. Four months should be it. You got a week then to get a building permit. You just imagine, mate, how that would revolutionize the Australian economy, the jobs it would create, the encouragement it would give to developers and investors, dramatically change the landscape. And what does it cost? The stroke of a pen and some more planning officers at councils it would absolutely revolutionise and supercharge our economy. But this nonsense of taking years to get planning permits, it's farcical. It's, as I said, it's 16th, 17th century, you know, behaviour, this type of thing. And especially now, now more than ever, uh, responding to the, to the challenges of last year. Just on that, how well do you think Australia did respond to the challenges of COVID and how strongly do you rate the leadership of the federal government over the past 12 months? Well, obviously, I'm a friend of Scott and uh, Reidenberg and Hunt. Uh, I think they did a fantastic job, to be honest. Um, it's not the normal Liberal government thing to spend hundreds of billions and then to give another hundred billion in guarantees to banks. Um, but that's what they did. They did what needed to be done. And uh, even John Howard said to Josh Frydenberg, you're doing the right thing. This was a crisis 
the like of which we'll never see before. I mean, we had a curfew here in Victoria. You weren't allowed to leave your home. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's gobsmacking what had to be done. But they did a great job federally and keeping the Australian economy uh, alive. Uh, yes, it's mortgaged our future to, to, to a large extent, but it would have killed the Australian economy and the devastation would have been manifest. I mean, as Josh Frydenberg himself says, seven or 800,000 jobs were saved by JobKeeper. Uh, I think Greg Hunt's performance was devastatingly good. Um, he's a, he's a world-class Minister Hunt and Scott's leadership over the top of it. Biting his tongue, of course, he had to go to those national cabinet meetings where the premiers were making all the decisions. And, but Scott, you know, who had very little power over the states, uh, just bit his tongue and kept the national unity together. So I think the leadership was great. I think Vera Jicklin is the standout premier. She knew when to and how to lock down um, some of the others, like this fellow here in Victoria and the bloke in West Australia would panic immediately and close the whole shop down. Well, it's because they don't have a business background. Your immediate thought is close the whole joint down. If you understand business, like Vera Jicklin or Stephen Marshall in South Australia, you know, you can't do that. You kill people, you kill properties, you kill business. So I think the leadership federally was, was outstanding. And just as a juxtaposition, how would you rate the leadership of the Victorian Labor government over <laughs> the past 12 months in particular, or at least over the past six months in that second lockdown? Well, you've got to look at it this way, that, that under Andrew's watch, uh, 800 people died. Um, you know, any, any half reasonable Premier or Prime Minister would have fallen on their sword and resigned in disgrace. Um, these days, it's it's annoying politically. People just don't resign. They just sort of carry on until they're carried out in a box. Uh, and in any other country in the world, this fellow would, would have been a national disgrace. Uh, but there he is soldiering on, um, not even battering an eyelid. And you've got the families of people who've died because of his incompetence uh, gobsmacked at, at, at what's happened and this fellow's still in charge. I mean... People have resigned from, as premiers and prime ministers and, and, and ministers over fairly minor things. I mean, he, he kicked a fellow out, Andrews kicked a fellow out of the Labor Party down here for branch stacking. Um, Adam Somirek, who was apparently putting members into Labor branches. On the other hand, he, so he got expelled from the Labor, sacked as a minister and expelled. On the other hand, under Andrews watch, 800 people have died and he's still in office. I mean, you tell me, where the moral equivalent is there, mate. <laughs> Not to mention Barry O'Farrell resigning over a bottle well, of wine. Well, but <laughs> I mean, you know. It's amazing. Uh, I wanted to ask you about um, uh, over in the States. We've just seen the election of a new president there. What impact do you think the change of leadership will have on US-Australia relations? And how different do you think the new administration's priorities will be to that of the old administration? I honestly don't think it'll make any real change between Australia and the US. Our relations will be the same. In terms of priorities, though, I think the priorities of the Biden government uh, administration will be different. Um, Trump was more about changing, you know, the way America was doing business. Biden is very much part of the old Obama era, which is just accept what's happening and do your best and move on. Trump was a revolution in the fact that he said, listen, there's an injustice that we tend to fund all of the NATO countries. Uh, you people have got to put in more money rather than the Americans being your financial provider. Um, he wanted to disrupt the relationship between the US and Iran, the US and North Korea. He wanted to bring peace to the Middle East. I mean, Trump's foreign policy record, I think, is absolutely outstanding. So if, if, he'd, if he'd run on his 
policy record, he'd be would have been re-elected. But his own personal behaviour, for all the reasons everyone watching this knows, was so terrible. He got he got thrown out. I mean, he should never have lost this bloke. Um, but um, he behaved badly, foolishly, uh, and was you know thrown out. So I, I think that I think the priorities of the Biden administration will be different. He's he's clearly concentrated on global warming as one of his main priorities um, and just slowing the pace um, of change, reverting to, as I said, Biden era um, behavior, which is very much um, box ticking, go along with the crowd, don't create upheaval. Um, you know, he's, he's sort of, you know, like a, like a, you know, a man, station manager down there at the local train station. You know, the trains come, you give the tickets to people, the trains go, the next one comes along. I mean, it's all very pedestrian. And uh, after three years, he'll retire through ill health and, uh, Everyone will think, what, what, did, what did Biden actually do? He did nothing. So I don't think he's in for a glorious period as president. But um, then again, Trump's got only himself to blame, mate. Just sticking on that international theme, what do you think Australia can do to uh, not so much repair relations with China, but, um, but at least, uh, you know, try and get a bit of normality back into the relationship? Look, I think the only thing is time. Um, um, is this something you can do immediately tomorrow, this week? No, there isn't, unless you want to go begging on your knees and apologise for nothing. Well, Australia's not going to do that, nor should it. So the only thing is time, and time heals all, as we as we, as we we know. So slowly ministers start meeting, they start returning the phone calls of Birmingham and Dan Teen, and there's an official, you know, a couple of ministerial visits back and forth, and over time, relations improve. Um but is there anything we can do immediately? No, there isn't. And it's a terrible thing, but it is a lesson to us. If you rely too heavily on one country for your economic growth, particularly when it's not a democracy, you're always at risk. There's always the question, the issue of sovereign risk with a country like China. And, you know, we're paying the price for that now, unfortunately. And just again, on a, uh, on a sort of domestic level, we saw Yesterday, the game of musical chairs start to begin again inside the ALP with Shorten launching um, what I'm sure is a, a riveting book there in, in St Kilda. But what's your take on the leadership issues and what do you think or who do you think will lead Labor to the next federal election? Well, um, Albanese's had a year and a half. It's fair to say he's not gone well. If you look back and say what's Albo stood for in the year and a half, I don't know what he, I don't know what he stood for. I don't know what he's done in the last year and a half except he's all we know is he thinks Joel Fitzgibbon's a bit too, bit too right-wing on mining policy. That's all we. That's the only real sense of what we have with Albanese. I don't know that he can last. Uh, the only reason he's still there is because his opponents can't work out who to replace him with. So the likely position at the minute is Plebisek becomes leader and Jim Chalmers becomes deputy leader. But replacing an inner-city lefty with another inner-city Sydney lefty is that a good idea? I don't think so. Um, you know, I think the best person to lead Labor from an electoral point of view would be Joel Fitzgibbon, but they're not going to elect Fitzgibbon. The caucus is not going to elect him, <clears throat> and um, he's the most electable in terms of running against, <clears throat> excuse me, Scott Morrison. But the caucus are not going to elect him. The Labor Party are not going to elect him. So it's more likely to be plebiscite. I think Chalmers is too early. Um, Short would be a good option for them. I and mean, Jeff Kennett lost twice before he he won a third time. So you shouldn't write him off. Um, Bowen, I think, is, is um, <clears throat> made almost no impact. Um, and, um, you know, that's about it.
How have you seen the political environment in Australia change over time? You've been involved in politics for a long time yourself. How, how has the, the political environment shifted and what impact has the 24-7 news cycle and social media had? Well, mate, in relation to the second question, it's become a lot nastier. Uh, and that's because of the vile sewer that is, that is Twitter, which sooner or later the Morrison government needs to regulate as they do around the world. It's a disgusting sewer of uh, abuse and hatred, uh, vile hatred and that then permeates into the mainstream media because they quote what's happening on Twitter. Um, and then the, 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 the hatred in the debate and the anger in the debate just escalates. So that's been sort of a major change in the last 10 or so years as the debates become more rancid and angry because of that. Uh, in terms of your first question, in terms of changes, um, politics goes in cycles. So at the minute, what would you say about 2020? In 2020, we're in a cycle of management. Everybody was willing the government, state and federal to succeed. It didn't matter whether they were Liberal or Labor. The public just wanted our governments to succeed, to get the virus under control and to defeat the virus. So they don't care about the colour of the government. They just wanted all our leaders to work together and defeat the virus, which is largely what happened. And that's why those governments have been re-elected. They haven't wanted oppositions to start bagging governments because people think that detracts from the national approach to bringing the virus under control. So um, 2020 is like a year like no other and we'll never see it again. So it moves It moves in cycles. We go through periods where people want cultural change, then they want economic reform, or they want economic reform, or they want a period of stability. It's, uh, it's It depends on, you know, where Australia's place in the world is situated. But uh, as for recent times, um, COVID is something we've never seen before in terms of people's desire to want their incumbent governments to succeed irrespective of their political colour. Now, on a personal level, you first became involved in politics when you were a student at Monash University, becoming president of the campus Liberal Club and engaging in heated, heated and often amusing uh, debates with your opponents from what I've read. Take us through how your interest in politics developed. Well, um, my um, father was a teacher and my mother used to dabble a bit in property, you'll be happy to know. She'd, um, for those people that remember the old days, um, she used to buy the odd uh, a small apartment block and uh, renovate it and then subdivide it and after any number of years would sell it if she got a good offer. She, um, she did like holding them, but occasionally uh, agents reach out, as you know, agents like to get commissions and like to sell the property. So occasionally she get reached out to and we'd sell a property that my brother and I had spent hours and hours doing the gardens fixing up. So um, uh, my interest was in, came from, 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 you know, a mother who um, was interested in property and how the whole property market worked. And then um, uh, I got, I got, uh, I was on a current affair one night and uh, on Channel Nine and the old current affairs program and watched Jim Cairns, who was uh, this is about 1931. He was talking about the Vietnam War and what a disgrace it was. And I got up and said, "Listen, isn't it appalling for you to be up there um, complaining about Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War and how terrible it is when we've got the sons and daughters of Australian men and women fighting there?" So that aggrieved me his performance aggrieved me greatly and then I sort of became more interested in small business and you know we I didn't come from a position of a family of wealth or privilege um and uh, grew up in Glen Iris and uh we used to mix with people who were you know school teachers and real estate agents our, old, our oldest family friends were from a famous real estate agency called Blackburn and Lockwood 
um, from uh, from Armidale, and um, we knew the Lockwoods very well. So we grew up in an environment, basically a property-related environment, uh, and that gets you interested in small business, and that gets you then interested in the Liberal Party, and it basically grew from there. That with my sort of understanding that um, you know I didn't particularly like the ideology of communism. Uh, meant that one was drawn towards the Liberal Party as I was and I joined in 1973. Following your graduation from university with a Bachelor of Law and JD degree, you were involved in one of your first legal cases known as the Dollar Sweets case. Take us through what interested you about the law and how this particular case came about. Well, this is a situation where um, a uh, factory that made hundreds and thousands, uh, run by a guy called Freddie Stouter, uh, in um, Malvern Road in, in, um, in Glen Iris um, was under attack from uh, the Federated Confectioners Union. There was an argument about uh, hourly uh, working uh, rates uh, and uh, there was a strike and a picket and they were trying to close Fred Stouter's business down. And so um, we came along and um, helped take a legal action uh, trying to get rid of the picket line and got an injunction from the Victorian Supreme Court uh, ending the picket. So Fred's business could have a free flow of trucks coming in and out so he could resume his business. And this was a classic example of where uh, extremist unions were trying to crush a small business. And um, fortunately we had some funding from the late great Andrew Hay and David Jones and Gerald Ashman in the Melbourne Chamber of Commerce as it was in those days. And they funded a case uh, and um, um, you know, Alan Goldberg and Peter Costello represented the company at the bench in the Victorian Supreme Court before Justice Murphy and uh, Murphy granted the injunction and the picket line dissolved and, as I said, Fred Stouter was able to resume uh, operation of his business. You established your own legal firm at age 25. What are some of the highlights from your career in the legal sector other than the Dollar Sweets case? Well, I got involved in industrial law and we acted for a number of people over the years who were uh, under attack from sort of extremist unions. These days, the unions are a bit more, uh, a bit cleverer in relation to what they do. They get they get good legal advice. So in the olden days, they'd just behave in a fairly lawless manner thinking they could get away with anything uh, until they ran into their lawyers who said, no, that's illegal. These days, they tend to get legal advice first so they know what the limits of their actions are. But, um, uh, oh, we acted for, for people in quite a few uh, important cases. Um, uh, a cinema which was being built down in sale, which was under attack from unions. Um, a couple of people who were refused admittance to uh, their workplace or sacked in the workplace because they refused to join a trade union. Um, so, you know, looking after the rights of individual men and women who were being challenged by their unions um, or small business people being attacked by the unions, they were the cases um, uh, that, you know, we very much like to do to defend people's rights in that regard um so um and, and in addition that one does all the normal things that lawyers do but um that was probably the highlight of of, of my decade or so running a law practice which was to help people um you know fight off um the the behavior of extremist unions and then later in your career you also established your own merchant bank jt campbell and co which is still in existence today Take us through some of the best deals you've done over time, whether it was working with clients or whether it was advising businesses or business figures. Well, we bought a software company earlier on called Moleflow, um, which we then, which was the world leader in um, 
the, in, in, in working out how plastic flowed into an injection molding machine, um, which was far more complex than simple people that they could understand. But um, <laughs> uh, we floated that on NASDAQ and six or seven years later, um, I was very much involved in the founding of the great company Emich with Harold Mitchell, which was the first digital marketing advertising company in Australia. And Harold and I got together in 1999 and discussed the fact that with the advent of the internet, people would start advertising on online shortly. So we founded Emich, um, and it was great to work with Harold Mitchell, who was sort of a doyen of the Australian media industry. Um, he's, a, he's a great Australian and ran a brilliant business for many, many years, um, Mitchell and Partners, until it was consumed by um, greater, um, larger organisations from overseas. Uh, we've done quite a few floats. We've been involved in the childcare sector for the last um, 18 or 19 years. Uh, we've done quite a few floats of um, childcare um, companies, operating businesses. Um, it's, a, it's a great industry. Um, and uh, something we've tended to specialise in in the last, you know, 20 odd years. Um, so, um, yeah, that's been uh, well, well worth it over the years. Just on uh, Harold Mitchell, he's got a fantastic book, Living Large. What impact did the failed ASEC case have against uh, him, do you think, in, in terms of his psyche? He used to be quite a lot um, out there in the media and, and uh, writing columns and that sort of thing. Seems to have gone into his shell a little bit more recently. Um, how, how's he going? Have you spoken to him? How's, how's he holding up? As a matter of fact, I haven't spoken to him since since the case. Um, look, these are matters of for fine judgment. Essex got to do its job, and it, it obviously pursued the case it thought was appropriate. Um, however, um, Justice uh, Beach um, took a took a view which was that the case wasn't terribly strong, as you know, and what Harold did was at the lower, very lower end of the scale. Uh, and um, I hope I hope he's not I hope he's not dented by it at all because um, you know the country needs people like Mitchell. Um, you know he started a business and he went broke, and you know he started again. He got a loan from Kerry Packer, as we know famously, it's in his book. And um, Mitchell then became one of the great advertising executives in this country's history. It was an honour to do a, a transaction with him. Um, make business is tough i mean there's not there's not anyone in business who hasn't been prosecuted investigated sued threatened attacked wound up um you know sued by the council the tax office work cover the government whoever it's just that you know it's incredibly difficult to do business in australia incredibly difficult it's what i was talking about before in relation to just a simple planning permit i mean Governments make it too difficult for, for a lot of people in this country. The rules are incredibly tight. And one of my great criticisms of the business community, by the way, is that you look at the criticism of Harold Mitchell as a conflict of interest or whatever. The politicians in this country have, have you look at Daniel Andrews, who we were talking about before. He's passed all his industrial manslaughter laws, wanting to put people basically in the property industry. Mm, mm. So on his watch, 800 people died Right, his watch, 800 people died, yet he thinks that directors of companies where there's death or serious injury should be prosecuted, and if there's death, potentially prosecuted for manslaughter. So there's a development happening place right across the road from where I am now. So someone falls, dies, the director of that property company can be put in jail for manslaughter. Well, Andrew's got away with 800 deaths and still in office. Not prosecuted, not lost his job, not resigned, Amazing. not find a not not even faced a leadership challenge. 
not not anyone in his own party called on him to resign. Yet he wants to put a property developer in jail. So what has happened, mate, is the business community, and Harold was a victim of this, the business community have allowed themselves to have imposed on them a series of rules and regulations which do not bind our politicians. These politicians of all colours and of all in the last 20, 30 years have heaped that many potential criminal liabilities on, on business leaders, false and misleading statements in prospectuses, for example, a criminal offence, you can go to jail for it. Um, yet none of this stuff relates to them, none of it. The business community can go to jail, the politician faces no penalty whatsoever. This is where I think, you know, I've been critical of the BCA over the years. The BCA, Business Council, so should have stood up, stood up years ago and said, listen, you want us to be judged by these things? Okay, if you politicians make false and misleading statements inducing people to vote for you by making promises about policies that you don't keep, then you should be sacked, jailed, fined, whatever else. Just as a company director who signs up at a prospectus where the forecast isn't met is potentially under threat from ASIC for criminal and civil liability. So you have a massive, massive disconnect in this country where the business leadership, because of its weakness and ineptitude, have allowed themselves to have a regime of legislative penalties imposed on them by people to whom the same rules do not apply. Go figure. I wanted to ask, reflecting on some of the significant players you've worked with over your career, you mentioned Harold Mitchell there. Who else stands out as, as somebody that had, you know, incredible business now, or that's achieved incredible things? I know you've worked with the Packers, the Packer family, Solomon Liu, um, Gina Reinhart. Who have been sort of the standout figures, do you think? Well, I think they're all um, extraordinary people in their own, own right. I mean, Solly Liu is probably Australia's greatest retailer ever. Um, he's He's got a a feel for the consumer and for products and you know, still goes to stores this day on Saturdays and walks up and down the aisles, uh, management by walking around, he calls it. Um, I mean, I think he's probably the greatest retailer in Australia's history, if not one of the great retailers of the world. Um, Gina um, has, you know, to get, to, get, to get her minds up and running after all of the issues she's faced has been extraordinary. She's a woman of um, incredible courage and fortitude. Uh, Gina Reithart. Um, yeah, Kerry Packer was Kerry Packer. I mean, you just read the books on Kerry. That's that's him. Um, he was uh, an amazing man. I've had the honour of knowing Lloyd Williams over the years, and um, I think his achievement in building Crown and Hudson Conway and the Melbourne Cups he's now won has just been extraordinary. I think he's a very great Australian, Lloyd Williams. Uh, wish we had a hundred of him. Wish we had a hundred Solomon Lewis, Lloyd Williams. You know, Packers and Reinhardt's, um, these people, because they employ tens of thousands of people. Um, they understand the profit motive, which is still rather important. Uh, and uh, they've got bold visions and have done great things for our, for our country. So, you know, Australia's lucky, lucky we've had some tremendous entrepreneurs uh, over the years. Um, Solomon Lou gave an interview with the, or, or paper on Saturday where he reflected on a development he did with Donald Trump um uh, 15 years ago so that would have been a fascinating thing to be involved in but um um you know so yeah these people are great australians and uh, as i said i i particularly take my hat after winning on the property sector because it's the most from my own experiences the most incredibly difficult uh sector and governments make it very very difficult to do business my second last question is how does michael kroger keep himself busy today and what services or, or specialties does JT Campbell and Co offer? 
Well, Jodie Campbell's going into semi-retirement with me. Um, with, uh, <laughs> and I'm really advanced age now and father time moved on. The one the one person you can't be is father time. So um, uh, we used to do floats and capital raisings, but uh, these days I'm not uh, I'm not going to do that anymore. So I just look after my investments. I'm renovating a property. I'm involved in the childcare sector. We own a few childcare, sec uh, 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 childcare businesses um, and, um, you know, um, Obviously, one likes to travel when one can to do those things in life that you should have done earlier but haven't been able to do. So um, I took one of my sons to Mount Everest last year to the, to the base camp, uh, which was just extraordinary. Went to South America and all sorts of travel experiences. That's, you know, they're the things you need to do. And I've got a small interest in politics. I'm a great fan of Josh Frydenberg and Greg Hunt and others, as you said. So so um, you keep a small interest in that. But um, Basically, uh, no, I don't need to advise anyone else any longer. I advise <laughs> myself and my own family. And so, so far, so good. <laughs> my final question is, uh, your corporate office is in Melbourne CBD. I, I'm presuming you, you've still got the office there. Based on on what you've seen, I'm not sure if you've been into the city, but I'm sure you'll be, into the, uh, you'll be going into the city over the coming weeks. How long do you think it'll take for CBDs to recover, in particular Melbourne CBD? Well, I've actually closed my office, believe it or not. <laughs> Because I don't think I need it anymore. I'm I'm sort of you know one of those people that reassessed over COVID and thought, well, do I need to, to do this anymore? So, um, no, I think it's going to be quite going to be quite some time. Uh, I think Zoom is going to change the you know the pandemic mixed with Zoom uh, has you know uh, taught us a whole lot of new lessons, and uh, that's going to have a flow and effect through interstate travel for meetings. People do all these things on Zoom now, and so I think it's going to be, have a dramatic effect. I think it's going to have a dramatic effect on retail in the city. It's certainly gonna have an effect on cafes and restaurants in the city, which I think are gonna suffer pretty greatly. Um, and uh, I, I think it's gonna be quite a long time. I'm just very happy with the Liberal Party. We, when I was president, we sold our building at the end of 2018 for a record price. And uh, I'm very happy we did because an agent told me it's only worth two thirds of what we sold it for now. So, wow. um, you know, CBD rents are going to decline significantly. Um, I think it'll be five to 10 years. I think the suburbs are going to are going to are going to boom in the next um, 10 years because people realise they don't need to be in the city, and uh, there are quite a few businesses that I'm sure you know as I know who are relocating or thinking of relocating. It's better for their workers not to have to be in the city. So I think it's going to be many years before it recovers, mate. Many years. Michael Kroger, absolute pleasure having you on this morning. Been very generous with your time. Thanks again. Look forward to seeing what the next chapter entails and, and good luck with the uh, with the next property and, and whatever else you've got planned over the, the coming months ahead. Appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure.